to get going. Yeah, thank you very much, um, James. Good morning, everybody. Um, I think we've hit record numbers in terms of um, attendees, people signed up for today. So I don't know that if that's um, a sign of everybody uh, getting so fed up of uh, the uh, not knowing what day of the week it is, or is that just me? Um, but um, everyone is a distraction or whether people have just got lots of questions at the, at the moment so um welcome to everybody in fact you were you, uh, you're the first people to see my new decorated um office so uh up until last week many of you were criticizing me about how i still had bare plaster on the walls so it's an improvement Hi. So, usual um, this morning, I'm going to uh, talk about a couple of things that have just sort of um, come to my attention in terms of news uh, before starting to deal with some of the questions that I've had in, particularly this morning, focusing around the issues of testing and vaccination for COVID. Um, 19. Um, in terms of things that have floated across my desk, um, the big news of the week is around the Uber decision in the Supreme Court around the status of um, the taxi drivers and whether or not they have acquired workers' rights. Now, anybody who's been following the sorts of ups and the downs around the case law um, involving various different employers um, like Pimlico Plumbers and Deliveroo and Uber and all of these different um, organisations that are maybe trying to do things a bit differently in terms of how they engage people will have known that the direction of travel, um, if you like, was very much um, perhaps in the direction that the decision has actually gone. So I'm not particularly surprised that the Supreme Court have taken a statutory-led approach and are saying it doesn't matter what you put in your contracts, the law is the law and the way the law operates to protect certain categories of, of people sort of trumps everything else, really. Um, so that combined with IR35 changes happening in April in the private sector for larger, medium and large companies um, means we do need to be looking, if we have got anybody in the workforce who isn't an employee, um, just looking at what we're doing around that and saying, have we actually got people who need to be in a different category to perhaps where we've put them up until now? So that's something to be to be thinking about. In terms of employment law, um, Brexit is um, a bit of a damp squib in a way. Um, I'm just trying to work out why my slide won't go. Oh, there we are. Um, in terms of, you know, no real change for us. All our laws are still retained using the jargon um, and we carry on with very little um, to affect us um, from that perspective. But there is this deadline for EU nationals to get their status sorted out by June of this year. Um, and shout out here for my colleagues at Newfields Law, um, Glyn Lloyd and his team. Um, they are doing a lot of training. They've got Welsh Government funding to be able to assist in this issue. So if you are needing to support staff around sorting themselves out, 
with that issue, then um, I suggest you give them um, a quick look. One of the other things that's caught my attention is a first instance decision, which doesn't normally get reported. We normally tend to focus on the Employment Appeals Tribunal and higher up courts. Um, this is a case that took place in the Birmingham Tribunal. And um, it's quite shocking, actually, when uh, when you when you read into the detail about um, Jaguar Land Rover's behaviour, um, I don't think they've come across at all well. And that is reflected in the very large um, settlement of over £180,000 that they're having to pay out. Um, but the legal point in this case um, was around somebody who, um, rather than just changing gender from um, male to female, um, the, the law the test, if you like, for the, for, the, for the judge in the case was whether or not our legislation can incorporate more than just that binary male-female issue and whether our law does extend beyond that and protect people who are perhaps gender neutral or their gender is a fluid issue um, or indeed gender queer. And perhaps it's not a surprise, but our courts have confirmed that our law does encompass all of that um, and protect people just as equally under the, the Equality Act. So a big landmark case um, for uh, the lady involved. She now um, wants to be known as female, um, which is why that um, particular gender label is being, being used for her. Um, but it's made us perhaps need to think about the language in our policies. And certainly one of the things on my to do list at the moment is to go through, you know, my handbooks, my policies and start just thinking about the language that's used in them um, and perhaps stepping towards more uh, gender neutral um, language. So that's something that you might want to, to think about as well. Another, it happened to be a race case, um, went in front of the Employment Appeal Tribunal, but this, you know, point is the same for all protected characteristics. Um, in the case, somebody was um, claiming racial harassment, and as you'll know, employers can be precariously liable for what goes on in the workplace. Um, so whilst the employer might not have encouraged something to happen, um, they're still responsible for it. But you can raise a defence that says we took all reasonable steps as the employer to prevent that from happening in our workplace. And typically we've relied on our handbook policies and procedures and giving training to people on diversity and inclusion. Um, and certainly years ago, pretty much that was all an employer needed to do to get off the hook. Um, with the goalposts shifting, uh, over time, things like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, I think we're seeing the courts now toughening up in their approach. And in this particular case, diversity training had taken place, but it was two years ago. And they found that just by example, the way the um, the manager had handled the particular complaint, not taking it seriously, um, the way HR had um, not upheld the person's grievance, for example, that 
that was evidence that showed that any diversity training that had been done had not worked or was stale using the the language that the judges did so they found that the employer couldn't rely on that defence. So that very much tells us that we need to be training people more often. We need to be doing refresher training. We need to be reminding people. We need to be making sure that people are putting into practice what we've trained them um, on and that we are creating a culture where people if they are observing something going on in the workplace, that they don't hesitate to step in and say, "Whoa, hang on a minute, that's not that's not what we're about here." Um, and that unless we can show that that's going on, then we're not going to be able to raise the defence. So I think, in terms of budgets and employers looking at training and what they're doing, they're going to have to focus a lot more if they want to be able to to raise uh raise that defense so um just another thing that hr needs to be sort of worrying about at the moment so those were the things i wanted to just touch on um and now move into some of the questions that we've received um one of the questions that mel jones from ensinger raised was around the april 2020 changes to contracts of employment and um for those of you who aren't aware um we've we've always had a sort of list of things that we must include in, in written statements to staff. And that list just got a bit bigger in April of last year. Um, I'm not particularly suggesting that you need to rush out and change every contract for all your existing staff, but certainly with new staff, when you're putting in place new contracts, you certainly want to update your contracts. Um, Training requirements is one of the things on the list now that has to go in. So Mel's question was, you know, how do we deal with this in contracts? And I think you end up with a couple of different sort of permutations and options that you could be including. So um, if you're not providing any training um, and you're not expecting your staff to do any training, then, you know, it would just be a simple statement saying that. If there is training that people need to do that's mandatory to the job that you're going to be paying for, then we should be mentioning um, that there is training of that nature. Um, equally, if the employee themselves is going to have to pay for any training or maybe attend outside normal working hours, then we should be um, setting that out as well. Um, I don't think there's any magic to the drafting of this um it may be as simple as saying from time to time we might ask you to do some training courses um where possible we'll arrange for those to be done in working hours um if you do have to do them on a day of the week that you don't work because obviously part-time as it might be applicable to time off in lieu will be given um you know just something as basic as that really um Lots of you will use repayment of training fees agreements. Um, if you're bothering to put training into your contracts, you might decide that rather than have another bit of paper that you want people signing signing up to, that you might stick that in your contract um, and then it's done and you don't have to remember to do it at the time that the training is being done. Um, the important thing is that you, you do just catalogue something about training um, in, in your contract. 
One of the um, other things that's passed my desk recently is around the issue of long COVID cases. And we're now starting to see the impacts of people who had COVID maybe a year ago, but are still struggling with their health. Um, certainly, I know people management have covered it recently in, in the particular case that I'm dealing with. An individual was hospitalised, but I don't think he was in a coma or um, intubated, but certainly had assistance with, with breathing. Um, and he's my age, previously fit, healthy, um, no underlying health issues um and is still experiencing problems he describes um feeling like he's got a hangover all the time breathlessness is an issue fatigue is an issue um some people are experiencing chest pains and lots of people are experiencing very fluctuating symptoms so they might think that they're well enough to come back to work which is what happened in the particular case that I'm dealing with and then they the person has struggled um to maintain um being back in the back in the workplace um lots of discussion about whether or not somebody who is suffering from long COVID is going to be protected by the Equality Act in terms of a protected characteristic and disability um you might remember that a medical diagnosis isn't actually a requirement for being protected under the uh, the definition of disability. The definition of disability focuses very much on the um, effects of something on your ability to do normal day-to-day -day activities, whether it's substantial enough, whether it's long-term enough. Obviously, long-term um is uh a question mark when it comes to to this um the drudy case that i've referred to there um encourages everyone to look at the time when the alleged act or omission happened and say at that point was the person um likely to be and well for sufficiently long that they would then um, qualify under the the, uh, the definition of disability, which is of course something that's going to last forever or 12 months. So you could have somebody who's maybe been unwell for six months and the medical opinion is that they're likely to still be unwell for a further six months, they're still going to get caught by that definition. It's not just a question of having to wait a year before you, before you get across, across the line. Um, in, the, in the Hay case, that was a, a case where somebody had TB um, and had a, a range of sort of respiratory um, problems, some of which were connected to that um, having had TB, some weren't, and the tribunal's approach was to look at the sort of constellation of the symptoms. So where we've got something that isn't sort of a strict, clear medical diagnosis, um, where it's very 
different for different people, where it does fluctuate, it is still possible for the tribunal to sort of look through all of that and decide that there is there is a disability. Um, I've just referred to the Oxford University study there, um, where they've um, talked about some of the data around these cases. Um, so for me, I can almost see the next wave of um, particularly sort of section 15 of the Equality Act claims for um, discrimination and sort of harassment claims and things, particularly where managers perhaps aren't aware of this as a condition um, and aren't aware of what their duties to make reasonable adjustments are for those with disabilities. So um, it might be something that we need to start educating our managers um, about. Which moves me nicely into um, thinking about testing and vaccinating for, for COVID and certainly had lots of your questions around um, this issue. So it was quite lucky that I was planning to talk about it anyway. Um, and just touching on testing to begin with, they reckon that between um, one in three and one in four people are asymptomatic with COVID, so are potentially going into the workplace um, unaware that they have um, COVID and so obviously potentially able to spread um, that about as well. Um, it's interesting when you look at some of the data now talking about um, where there have been outbreaks and things that workplaces are actually causing issues. If you look at look at some of the data i think workplaces come higher up than things like schools and pubs and restaurants when when they were open um and that's hardly surprising is it because we spend the majority of our time in work so we've got employers also perhaps in a in, stuck in a bit of a cycle where people are having to um take time off to self-isolate when they do become unwell and have symptoms or if they've been in contact with somebody and of course there's all sorts of costs associated with that as well so testing is a potential way through some of those issues and um, the government has sort of increasingly started promoting testing um, just a couple of articles there um, with government um, press releases where they've been ramping up, first of all, asking employers to take part in a test, uh, a sort of pilot project. This is in, in England and more resources being put into local authorities in England for, um, for testing to take place. Um, so definitely um, more encouragement for employers to start doing this. Um, you've all had to learn lots of jargon and get with the science in the last year. There's a bit more for you here um, in terms of the different types of tests that we're talking about. The PCR tests are the ones that when you, you know, go to the football stadium to um, be officially tested um, and it's a longer test, it gets sent away to a lab and then you get the results a couple of days later. Um, so if you're symptomatic, that tends to be the test that you get sent off to have. Um, that's the PCR test. What we're talking about in workplaces is a different type of test. It often gets compared to pregnancy tests, the lateral flow um, testing. And that's uh, a much more quick um, type of test with results in um, 
minutes rather than hours and days. Um, so worth um, you know knowing which kind of testing we're talking about before, before we do it. In terms of um, introducing testing and, and thinking about why you might want to do it, I think it's really, really important for any employer to actually understand the why before they start communicating to staff. So is this about preventing spreading COVID to colleagues? Is this because we work with vulnerable people? Is this because um, we're key workers and we're trying to minimise the number of absences that we're dealing with and the risk there? Um, is it because what we do, it's difficult to maintain the social distancing? Um, is it to stop spreading to, to the public? You know, it could be all of those. But I think it's really important if we're going to start introducing something to understand the message that we need to be um, giving to people when we start communicating um, about it. Um, it may be that this is just part of keeping people safe and feeling safe in the workplace and relieving some of the psychological stress that people are under in feeling that they are going into an environment where um, you know they're at risk of of catching COVID. So very important for us to get to the bottom of why we want to we want to do it before we start doing it. Um, there is always a concern from employees about if I did test, if I took a test and I tested positive, and then of course I'm going to be required to isolate. Um, what is the sick pay position going to be? Um, and certainly very frightening statistics coming out of the Resolution Foundation and the Royal Society of the Arts talking about how many people um, have breached self-isolation rules because they can't afford um, not to in terms of sick pay policy. So certainly something that all organisations have been having to juggle with in the last year is um, the wider ramifications of their sick pay policies. Um, if people are being sent off to, to have the PCR tests um, during working time, you know, am I going to be paid when that uh, when I'm being sent off to do that or am I going to lose pay? Um, there are some concerns, I think, from employers around false positives. Um, it is an issue with testing and we may be sending people um, home in circumstances where it, it is a false positive um, and that will have knock-on effects for us. And we, But it's balancing that against catching the people who might go on to spread it and then other people have symptoms and have to take time off as well. Um, ACAS are very clear that we need to be developing a policy around this um, and agreeing it with staff and unions. You're going to see the same things coming out when I when I talk about it um, with vaccinations. Um, but we need to scope out how we're going to do it, when we're going to do it. So is it going to be randomly done? Are we going to be testing certain groups of people on certain days of the week? Um, are we going to be rotating? Is it only certain parts of the business that, where it needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera? We need to, we need to think it through. Um, and we need to make sure, a bit like drugs testing policies, that we're not just singling 
people out um, for testing, that there is, you know, some sensible rationale um, for, do for doing it. I wondered here if anyone wanted to um, say whether they'd make it voluntary or compulsory in their organisations if they were, were thinking about doing it. Um, no employer is going to have in their contract, you're going to have a COVID test because, of course, we you know didn't know we needed it. Um, certainly some employers are thinking about introducing the requirement now into contracts for new starters. So if you take on this job, you are going to be tested on a regular basis um, so that it goes into, into the contract. But where we've got existing staff and we haven't got that contractual power, then we are tending to rely on it being a reasonable management instruction or a reasonable request of the employer to, can you please have this test? Um, I think you're going to see the same threads coming through when we talk about vaccination. But, you know, if you've got people who are saying, well, I don't want to have a test, I think we need to understand why that is. And it's about listening to people. And I think often as employers, we're not terribly good at actually listening to people. Um, you know, what are the person's concerns? And if we do talk to people, then we can probably eliminate lots of the concerns so somebody might be concerned about um what's going to happen with the data so then we can talk them through what the data protection implications are and i'll come on to that in a second um it may be that they have got those concerns around pay in which case we can talk them through what our pay policy is and that's likely to have a big impact then on take up Anecdotally, from the employers that I've spoken to who have introduced testing, um, they have found that it's gone a lot better than perhaps they expected, um, that they haven't had big issues with people refusing, that actually people have um, welcomed it as um, something that supports their safety in going in to a, a workplace. Um, so, Julie, I know you asked a question about um, whether or not contracts may evolve to include um, testing. And I think I think yes is the answer to that. I think that is going to be happening. In terms of the GDPR implications, a um, bit of good news this week. Europe have recognised Britain as having the um, the necessary level of um, adequacy is the word that's used when it comes to data protection. So we are now, um, although we are a third country for European purposes, we are recognised as being at the same level from a data protection perspective, which is good because that means there's less um, contracts that need to be changed as a result. Um, the ICO has already said that for employers who are testing, there's that pathway through. It's Article 9 um, of the GDPR in terms of it being necessary for you to exercise your employment law obligations. Um, obviously, health and safety is one of your obligations and that you've got a legitimate interest in processing test results as part of dealing with that. So there is a pathway through. Um, 
obviously all the usual GDPR um, instructions around um, telling staff what we're doing with data is going to be important. And of course, none of our privacy notices that we drafted in 2018 because the GDPR was coming in uh, is going to cover um, is going to cover testing because none of us knew we were ever going to need to do it. So that's another reason for having a policy. You can put your data protection sort of privacy um, paragraph in that policy so that you've covered off um, that we've told people what we're going to be doing with their data. Um, but all the usual things around only using the data for that purpose and um, not keeping it any longer than we need to and um, all of those technological um, protections around it, all that sort of stuff is all going to um, is all going to apply as it does to any data that we're, we're dealing with. In terms of somebody saying, no, I'm not going to be tested, what would we do? Um, I'm assuming we've had the conversation and tried to find out what the objections were. Potentially, if somebody has consistently refused, we are into a disciplinary process and probably it would be a warning initially and, um, you know, working way, our ways through the warnings. Um, potentially to dismissal if somebody did um if did continue to refuse um we've always got to remember unfair dismissal in the background here so um before we ever dismiss for this sort of thing we would have to look at were there any alternatives so could the person be working from home for example so that they wouldn't um, need to be tested would be a relevant question at, at that point or you know could the person do a non other people facing role um, and be quarantined somewhere in effect I know lots of employers have had to do all sorts in the last year to to keep shielding people safe and put in place all sorts of things to try and um, make sure that people are safe. So we need to think about all of all of that. Um, and usual principles are going to apply around things like your disciplinary process. So a decent letter inviting somebody to the meeting, explaining what they're facing, the right to be accompanied, you know, don't ever forget all of those process things that that help us get a, um, a safe dismissal potentially. In terms of where we've tested and we do get a positive result, I know you'll all have had systems that you've put in place in the last year to deal with where somebody is unwell with COVID and identify who they've been working with um, and notifying um, because it is um, a, a reportable disease, as I'll come on to in a, in a moment, um, to the HSE and tracking um, who that person has been mixing with um, so that we can take precautions as, as regards those people as well. So all of that is going to be the same when we get a positive test. In terms of the tax relief position, the government has um, indicated that employers who are paying for tests will um, be able to claim tax relief, but only so far, it only lasts until the 5th of April. I imagine that nearer to the 5th of April, that goalpost will be moved again. Um, one would hope so, it would make, certainly makes sense if, if that happened. 
So that's testing, probably a sort of easier territory really than vaccination. And um, I'm sure you will have all heard Charlie Mullins of um, Pimlico Plumbers, who was famed for um, not treating his workers as workers. Um, he's always on the edge of things, has come out quite publicly in a blog with a sort of no jab, no job kind of policy. And um, good old Charlie Mullins gives me somebody to um, to treat as the bogeyman here and um, keep referring to. So that kind of policy, I think, potentially could get him into all sorts of difficulties. But um, lots of you raised questions. I know Kerry Dixon, you raised the question about this. Tony Watts, you did. Emma Donovan, you did as well. Um, so I want to just focus on what how i think we can create a safe pathway through vaccination and i think we can um but we can't be black and white about it like charlie mullins i think if we're if we're in the charlie mullins no jab no job um then we're likely to end up in difficulties but there are pathways through and I, i'll tell you what i think um what i think they are interestingly um over the weekend the um, government estimate that had previously been that it would take until the autumn. I know Matt Hancock last week was saying it would take until the autumn for everybody to receive their jabs. Um, now we're hearing that it may be July. So we're in that moving feast um, period where it is going to take some time until everybody is offered the jab, but it seems to be getting, getting closer um, and certainly... Um, closer to when the government uh, announcement for England in the last couple of days around working from home um, has been very much that people will be working from home until June. So we're getting closer in time to when people will be opening up and going back to work. Um, starting point here needs to be an understanding that our government cannot force anybody to have a job and that's at sort of society level um, and a couple of different reasons for that one is the way our public health legislation works um, specifically says that the public shouldn't be compelled to have any particular medical treatment which will include vaccinations um, so given that the government are, are, are in that place and certainly you know if you forced somebody you'd be into criminal law territory having probably committed assault and battery um that means that employers are curtailed a little bit as well because if the government can't force people then employers uh, are in a similar position where they're not forcing people as well and as i said um, you know, there is that sort of constructive and um, unfair dismissal risk around this, uh, alongside some discrimination concerns that I'm going to talk you through. Um, but I think there are there are ways um, there are ways through it. Um, in terms of uh, studies that have been done, they reckon one in six is likely to refuse a vaccination. Um, so that person isn't breaking any law when they say i'm not going to have a vaccination but equally when we ask employers about the subject area um much higher numbers from employers 
um, talking about, um, you know, if you if you question managers uh, or executives about recruitment, you know, would you hire a, a vaccinated candidate over an unvaccinated one, then very much from the employer's perspective, the stats are starting to go the other way, where the employer very much would prefer that people were um, were vaccinated. There is a human rights angle, um, as well as that public health um, background to, to think about. You'll be aware of things like the right of privacy in Article 8, which we always end up talking about whenever we're talking about you know, monitoring in the workplace and things like that. Um, and there is Article 9, which is freedom of thought and religion, and that will come into some of the cases that I'm going to talk about around beliefs. Um, so when our judges are deciding any of our domestic um you know unfair dismissal cases discrimination cases etc they are required by um a section in our human rights act to bear that legislation in mind when they're making decisions um, public authorities in particular have to act in a way which isn't incompatible with human rights. Um, so there is a human rights background, but as you've probably become aware from reading other um, cases on, on human rights, an individual's human rights, and people are quite at home with saying, well, I've got a right to X, Y, Z, is always balanced against the rest of society and everybody else's human rights. So there's always balancing going on in any human rights decision. And I think this is one of those areas where, yes, as individuals, we do all have individual rights, but given the pandemic and um, the effects on wider society, probably if the law was going to come down on one side it's probably going to come down on the side of everybody rather than an individual if that makes sense there is a czech case that we're currently awaiting um, a european decision on that isn't about covid it's about um other state vaccinations that are mandatory where somebody has brought the kind of claim that says, you know, you can't force me to have this vaccination, it's against my human rights, um, and we're waiting to see whether my prediction on where that balance is going to lie is right. Um, but if I was going to bet, I think that's where I'd be putting my money um, to say that, you know, wider society will win out um, in, in that particular case. Now, as I mentioned, um, COVID is a reportable disease, um, which I think strengthens uh, employers wanting to look at vaccination as an issue. Health and safety has never had so much attention as it ha has in the last year. Um, if you start looking at the legislation and you start looking at the you know unlimited fines and potential custodial sentences for directors and trustees and things who um, are not taking health and safety seriously um, then there is an argument that an employer who doesn't look at this issue is potentially being negligent um, in, in, in not um, 
in, in, in not looking at this as something that is one of the reasonably practicable steps that an employer can take to protect their staff. Um, so certainly I think there's a big driver of health and safety here um, in this subject area. Um, there has been case law in support of an employer having to vaccinate, um, obviously not in relation to COVID because we haven't got any cases yet, but um, there was a case where an employer had failed to provide somebody with the hepatitis vaccination where they worked in circumstances where there was a risk of needle stick injury and that employer was clobbered under the health and safety legislation for not putting that in place. So you can see that that sort of parallel um, is there. Obviously, we've got a phased approach at the moment about who's having their, their jabs and when, um, very much focusing on people who work in care homes, um, social care, um, working with the elderly and the older age groups before coming down and, and, and then um, treating people with underlying health conditions. Um, I do have an underlying health condition, so I was very excited when my letter arrived last week. I have to say, I, the builders thought I was a bit mad because I got so excited. It was like winning the lottery. It was, you know, a brown envelope that I thought was going to be a tax bill. Um, and when I opened it, it was my invitation to go and have my jab. And um, so I skipped around telling everybody about it. And I think all the builders kind of going, <laughs> what? <laughs> why, why are you so excited? But for me, I didn't expect to feel like that when I opened the envelope. I've got to say, I, you know, I wasn't particularly, you know, waiting for it to arrive or anything or worried about it. But it was amazing how exciting it felt when it did arrive. Um, so um, I'm familiar now with what the letter looks like and, and what information people are going to be getting. Obviously, here in Wales, it's a very long letter because it's it's in English and it's in Welsh. So it does. Uh, it's a good um, probably eight or nine pages of A4. There will be employers, of course, who will have job specific factors that are driving their desire in this area. So, um, you know, again, back to those questions we were talking about with the testing. Um, why are we thinking of doing this? And what, you know, who who is this about protecting? Um, is it about psychological safety of colleagues? Is it about the people that we work with, etc.? And I've become a bit obsessed about vaccination and um, COVID for the last few weeks and I've been thinking about nothing else. Um, so on the weekend, I listened to um, any questions on Radio 4 and um, all the all the the politicians were asked about whether or not um, employers should be um, vaccinating and whether society ought to be, you know, introducing passports and things. And um, all the politicians really sat on the fence. And then after the show, there's a show where people phone in. And one of the gentlemen who had phoned in and had asked a question of the politicians was a gentleman from a care home who um, was obviously quite worried about workers in his care home having refused to take the vaccine and that he might be at risk 
if they, you know, is he doesn't have any control, does he, over who's coming in to care for him and whether, you know, the person who was going to be putting him to bed at night was going to be posing a risk to him. And it was interesting in the show after that every member of the public that rang in um, was definitely on the side of um, vaccination rather than not. Um, they were all talking about, um, you know, you shouldn't really be doing this job if you aren't prepared to have a vaccination because of your duty of care to the people that you care for, um, etc. So um, it was interesting to see that dichotomy between the sort of party line of the politicians and then what um, ordinary people were actually um, saying about it. So there are going to be lots of employers that have got those job specific factors um, where they can, if you like, justify their policy um, for um, reasons that perhaps other employers might not have. And that will be an important factor, I think, in any judge in an unfair dismissal case or in a discrimination case, having to think about um, the issue. And one of the tensions that we've got at the moment is around um, employers are still being told even if your staff are vaccinated you still need to put in place all your other health and safety um, practices that you have been doing like social distancing like wearing masks etc you know it doesn't get you off the hook so it doesn't reduce your costs of PPE and all of those sorts of things yet um, but I wonder if we are perhaps in the place that we were with masks if you remember when um, wearing a mask became um, something that people were going to have to do. We had a lot of objections and I'm not doing that. And now, of course, it's just normal and you put one on now probably without even thinking about doing it. And I, I suspect that we're on a bit of a journey like that with vaccinations and that it will become less of an issue um, over time. In terms of... Um, recruitment are there any legal barriers to you know asking people have you had a vaccination well there is section 60 of the equality act which you'll be familiar with is the one that says we shouldn't be asking health questions when we make a job offer but you'll probably know that there's so many exemptions to that that it drives a coach and horses through that principle so if it's relevant to reasonable adjustments or um, the ability of the person to do the job that you're employing them to do, then there's a pathway through that and you can ask the questions so you can justify it effectively. Um, I think the more practical issue is not whether we can ask the question. I think it's more around people, if we're not having a system where people um, have some kind of state-led passport to show they've had the vaccination. It's more the practical issue about somebody being able to show you that they have had the vaccination. Now, some people will keep the letter that they've had inviting them, but other people will put it straight in the bin when they've diarised the appointment or perhaps when they come home from having the appointment. So, um, you know, that might not be as workable. Um, and certainly, if you're going to have a policy of asking questions, then we get into all the discrimination stuff that I'm going to come on to. 
contractually, again, similar to the testing side of things, um, there are some contracts that already have in them that people have to be up to date with their vaccination. So, you know, if you work in a nursery, it's probably you've got that. Um, if you work in waste collection, you will have had to have um, hepatitis, for example. So um, we don't question that because we accept that for those jobs, those things are important. So I think, yes, um, to the question about whether employers are going to start introducing this, I think some will, you know, the Charlie Mullins of this world are definitely going to do it. Um, I think what a sensible employer will do is have, if they're going to have a policy of vaccination, is they will have pathways through it or exemptions. So it it can't be a black and white issue. In terms of your current contracts, obviously, if you wanted to introduce something, we're into contract change territory and, you know, all the usual stuff around consultation and um, getting agreement from people to that change. Although I've got to say, I've seen a lot of furlough letters that changed people's contracts this year that people have just, you know, managed to get through without um, too much objection from staff. So it may be that we're in that kind of territory as well. I have seen seen some people talking about their zero hours staff and that they might not give them any work unless they can show they've been vaccinated. Um, you know, we'll reduce your hours to nil if you haven't had the vaccination. Um, that, again, same as everything else I'm going to be talking about, there's the same kind of risks. So um, there is evidence to suggest that more younger workers are employed on zero hour contracts um, than older workers. So a policy like that could be indirectly age discriminatory. Um, so you'd need to be aware of, of that if you were minded to go down that kind of road. I'd, I'd be more inclined to stick um, with the direction that I'm going to be suggesting. So um, you're probably going to need a policy on it if you were going to do it. Again, consulting with the trade unions on it. Um, and any policy is going to need to explain the why, as we talked about earlier, um, as well as obviously who it applies to and, 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 and when and, and things like that. Um, it is going to be, I think, moving territory. So I would be putting in a quite a short date for review, regular review of any policy um, so that you can um, you know, keep up to date with that, that moving ground. And it is going to need to cover things like data protection, which we'll, we'll come on to. So alongside perhaps any sort of um, open stance on this, like your Charlie Mullins of this world, I think there are some indirect pressures that are building up um, as well around this. So um, we'll talk uh, in a little while about colleagues demanding perhaps that they only work with colleagues who have been vaccinated. Um, We've got perhaps pressure from customers or our service users 
um, who, again, there might be an indirect pressure there that they only want to work with people who have been um, have been vaccinated. So there's some of that sort of indirect pressure going on um, around it as well. Certainly, um, there was a headline in January when Sunday in the Observer about um, a particular IT provider who has, you know, come up with a system where you can create a form of workplace passport to record who's had um, ha who's had the jab and sort of track um, where it's going. So um, they were doing a lot of self publicity, I think, for their product, but they were certainly talking about it in terms of. Um, how popular it was it, it was and how many people have signed up for it. So um, it's interesting to see that the IT is following. So when I've drafted policies, I've done it on the basis that, you know, this is why we want to do it. Um, but recognising that there is going to be hesitancy and that we can't be one size fits all. And the problem with this is we know managers want things to be black and white, don't we? And they don't want to have to sit down and talk to people. Um, but I think this does have to be dealt with carefully in a case by case kind of way. Um, interestingly, vaccine hesitancy is currently listed as one of the top 10 greatest threats to global health at the moment. Um, in terms of the UK, um, we are actually recording better levels of willingness to be vaccinated than, for example, France, where um, there's greater vaccine hesitancy. Um, so it's interesting to, to, to compare. Um, but first of all, there are going to be some people who can't be vaccinated and any policy that we have is going to have to accommodate those people and make sure that we aren't doing anything to discriminate against those people. Um, so, you know, we can't be segregating the workforce into those who have and those who haven't. In particular, there will be those with medical reasons that they cannot have the vaccination. So those where it might trigger a, an allergic reaction to the ingredients in the jab are not going to be being given it. And some people who've got immune system disorders where um, they're not likely to respond well will not be given the, the jab. So there is going to potentially be some people who might be protected by the DDA, uh, the disability discrimination legislation um, in, in, in that respect. Um, so you know, your Charlie Mullins, no jab, no job, immediately you can see him getting into trouble in that category. Another category where people are not going to be given it generally is going to be those people who are pregnant. Um, certainly when surveys have been done, one of the largest groups for potential refusal of the vaccine has been women of childbearing age who are worried about fertility. Um, in terms of the letter that arrives, um, the letter tells you um, that the jab hasn't yet been tested for pregnant women, 
So unless somebody is at high risk of catching it because of what they do or um, has a clinical condition that puts them at very high risk of suffering complications if they have COVID-19, then generally they're saying don't have it if you are pregnant. So um, there is a cohort of people there that you can see immediately the sex discrimination alarm bell is ringing um, where a black and white policy could put those people at a disadvantage and where they may well um, be potential claims. We need to be mindful um, of that as well. In terms of other protected characteristics, the, um, the, the big one, if you like, is going to be um, religion and belief potentially. Um, on the religion front, it's worth noting that some of the sort of major religions where you might have expected that there would be vaccine hesitancy, um, where people perhaps traditionally refuse treatment, so I'm thinking of Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, um, certain religions, um, bodies have come out and have said, no, we're encouraging people to have the jab. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses have, the Hindu Council, uh, the Board of Deputies of British Jews, for example, are all saying to um, their worshippers, no, please do have it. Um, so it is worth, if somebody is perhaps demonstrating hesitancy from a religious perspective, to just delve a little bit into that and do a little bit, bit of research and find out whether um, there's a sort of genuine um, reluctance there or actually whether somebody's religious body is encouraging them to take um, the, the vaccine. Um, other religious grounds may be connected with um, animal related products uh, or whether something's been tested on animals. Um, it's interesting in the letter that you get, um, it's very clear that the approved vaccines don't contain any animal products or eggs. So obviously trying to encourage and, and show people um, that that shouldn't um, be an issue. But let's delve into this issue of religion and belief and see where we might be likely to, um, to land. In terms of um, belief, the sort of test that we all go back to now is the Grange case, which you might remember was the chap who believed in climate change and whether he could claim that for protection and you've always got to remember that there's a two-stage approach here so the first stage is is the person's belief protected as something that the law protects potentially as a protected characteristic and then the second question is of course whether or any discrimination has occurred that's a completely different matter but um a belief has to pass through these tests um and uh it provides the judges with a list that if they don't want to protect a particular belief, they've got some wriggle room to do that. So, for example, there was somebody um, who um, believed that the 9-11 um, attacks were false flag operations, a case called Farrell against South Yorkshire Police. 
and um, you know he very much believed that the media was controlled by global elite uh, seeking a new world order and it was all part and parcel of this big conspiracy and the judges would not provide him with protection they said um, yes it was a genuinely held belief but um, it didn't meet that standard of the certain level of cogency and seriousness and cohesion and importance that um, they would um, require. So those people who are anti-vax from that kind of perspective, um, sort of conspiracy theory type of perspective, are unlikely, I think, to um, obtain um, protection. Um, we have had in the last year the League Against Cruel Sports case um, reached the um, the higher courts where um, somebody who lives their life through vegan principles um, was potentially able to be protected. So if somebody was coming at this from that kind of perspective around, for example, animal testing, then potentially they may be um, protected. But as I said, in terms of actual ingredients in um, the vaccine. Um, Ava, don't force her. They're, no, they're you might hurt her, love. Going to um, not um, have such an issue there. I know, we but might have people that's, who are. That's how you rip somebody, you can't your speaker on somebody. Somebody needs to mute, to mute themselves. There we are. Um, some people might be coming at this from more just general concerns about the safety of the vaccine itself. Maybe they've known somebody's had a bad reaction um, or they're concerned about vaccination um, from a medical perspective. And that perhaps might be more likely to get protected. Um, they might be arguing, you know, we haven't tested it enough. Um, certainly there are, there is some medical evidence, as there always is with any drug or any treatment, there are always some people who experience some side effects. Um, and there have been issues with previous vaccinations, for example, um, narcolepsy being caused by the flu jab or um, other things that happened in the 1970s. So, um, you know, that might be something that the judges would look at. But again, I wonder the McClintock case um, was one where they they said, yeah, okay, you obviously do believe in this, but um, it needs to be based on actual information rather than a lack of information being available. So there have been certain beliefs that the, the, the courts don't protect. It's not about challenging that somebody believes it, you're free to believe what you believe, but we're not going to protect it as, as, as a society. So again, I wonder if um, if the balance is going to fall down on the sort of wider society rather than the individual in this kind of area. Um, I didn't know what the fear of needles um, is called. I can't say it, but it's up there on your slide. Um, potentially, if somebody has genuinely got this actual medical condition, that might be a reason not to um, be vaccinated. But I think if somebody was claiming 
this i i want to play devil's advocate with them and be really challenging them about when they were diagnosed with the condition and how it manifests itself etc cetera, etc cetera. um and you know maybe even getting their gp to confirm it um so um i think you know people aren't really going to be able to to rely on that so in terms of when it comes to having a policy and how we operate it, we've got to be careful of our direct discrimination cases. So particularly our disability where people have got health conditions that mean they can't be jabbed, the pregnancy cases. Um, I think any policy you create, you're going to have to have some exemptions. So the way I've dealt with it in my policy that I've drafted is um, to not give people the answers in the policy. So what I've done is I've said, um, you know, if you've got medical reasons for um, saying that you can't have the jab, then we're going to want to talk to you about the medical reasons and explore that. If you've got non-medical reasons, then again, we're going to want to sit down and talk to you about all of that. Um, and sort of kept it quite vague so that you can then move on to, you know, could I potentially be, be disciplined or, or dismissed if I don't have the jab? And, and then talking about that as a sort of deterrent value rather than setting out, you know, all the different permutations in your policy and giving people ideas of what they might be able to argue. I think you're, you're probably safer doing it, doing it that way. Um, in terms of indirect discrimination, I think this is probably where more of a risk comes in because this is where all those religion and belief cases might come, um, where somebody is saying, yes, your, your operation of your policy um, is fine, you apply it to everybody, um, but it happens to have this um, disproportionately negative effect on people with my protected characteristic. And this is where you do have the opportunity, unlike direct discrimination, where you cannot justify any discrimination. You can, in certain circumstances, justify discrimination here by showing that you're um, undertaking a proportionate um, means of achieving your legitimate aim of protecting the health and safety of everybody. So I don't think we'll have any problem establishing the legitimate aims behind this. I think it's more the proportionality, and that's a kind of European law concept. And it tends to mean, is there a less discriminatory means of achieving the legitimate aim without having to discriminate against the person indirectly? So um, I think that's where we perhaps get stuck with, well, actually, could we be testing people instead of vaccination? Um, you know, could this person be working from home instead of requiring vaccination, etc. We'll come we'll come into it. So everybody's talking about this one, whether or not we can potentially, if we've got a policy and somebody doesn't follow our reasonable instruction, take disciplinary action um, or potentially dismiss them. Um, and yes, ultimately, I think the answer to it is yes provided that we follow all those policy uh, procedural steps that I mentioned earlier with testing. Um, a lot of it's going to come down to the particular setting that somebody's in, um, you know, and how reasonable an instruction it was. Um, a, a judge is going to want to look into all of that. So again, 
you know, what's right for one employer isn't necessarily going to be the same for the next one. Um, if we can't deal with it as a conduct issue, then potentially we're into some of the substantial reason territory. Uh, maybe somebody's refusing to accept the change to their contract, or maybe we're receiving pressure from third parties, such as people that we work for, or we're worried about our reputational risks, or even just trust and confidence is broken down around this. So if we end up in SOSR territory, then we're perhaps into notice pay and, and, and things like that. But yes, potentially, we could end up with um, a dismissal um, situation with all the caveats about following fair process. I think we are going to need to document why we've done what we've done, as we always have to. Um, anyone who's been to a tribunal, you will know that um, your paperwork tends to be your trump card. So having, you know, records of decisions, why you made them, um, all the things you've done is always going to make you look good if you are challenged. A bit like um, earlier with testing, I think we can forge pathways through GDPR here. Um, it's interesting that this CIPD guide on um, vaccination that came out last week is quite cautious, um, probably more cautious than I'm being, certainly. Um, and it seems to suggest that because at the moment all the social distancing stuff still applies so vaccine doesn't give the employer the ability to you know stop wearing PPE and just go back to how we used to be that um, that, that weakens um, your sort of pathway through the through data protection I'm not sure I agree with that um, I think it's attention that we've all got to be mindful of in not going too gung-ho about vaccination too soon. Um, but I think we will get to a position where um, employers are um, more legitimately able to require um, vaccination. So all the same things that I said earlier about, um, you know, your privacy notices and, you know, covering up that angle off in your policy are going to apply here um, as well. I think what we do have to be mindful of is the issue of segregation, though, and if we're keeping lists of who has been and who hasn't been vaccinated, legitimate reason for having that data may well be around the health and safety stuff but what we need to be making sure is people don't start using those lists for other purposes so you know who I'm going to give work to who I'm going to promote um, you can just see how there might be sort of issues bullying and things that could arise um, around that so we need to need to be careful I think there are other angles going on here. Um, Charlie Mellon's bless his cotton socks, giving me the ability to talk about negative publicity. Um, I, I don't think his his stance has particularly given him good reputation. Um, and so we do need to be factoring that in, I think, to what we're doing. The CIPD guide makes a really good point. Um, probably the one takeaway thing that I, I took away from it around 
if we're requiring our staff to be vaccinated, but we're not requiring other visitors, contractors coming in and everybody else visiting us to be vaccinated, doesn't that undermine our vaccination policy? And that's, I think that's, that is a good point. And then that leads us on to whether or not we're going to end up in a world where somebody says to you, um, please come and, you know, send an engineer to service my photocopier, but only send somebody who's vaccinated, please. And whether employers are going to start to receive pressure, that indirect pressure again, to only send um, vaccinated staff. And you can see how um, that might then lead to all sorts of issues with managing unvaccinated staff and then claiming that they've been less favourably treated. Um, I know Tony raised a question about people working together and the potential for bullying. I think it's, it's important um, up front in our policies to be setting out that we won't tolerate any um, body treating anybody less favourably based on their vaccination status to try and deter um, any any issues. But we can all see how this might arise. So somebody says, I don't want to work with Joe Bloggs over there because Joe Bloggs hasn't been vaccinated. Um, we've got to be mindful of our Section 100 and Section 44 of the Employment Rights Act protections that I know we've talked about probably the last twice um, in terms of employees raising health and safety concerns being protected by the law and that we shouldn't then subject them to any um, detrimental treatment for having whistleblown or indeed just raised those issues. So you've got all of that um, tension um, going on. Um, there is a case that says everybody's beliefs are equally protected. Um, so we've got to be careful not to um, detrimentally treat our anti-vaxxers um, differently. Um, but I suspect that the judges would find a pathway through this, um, like they did in the gay cake case. If you remember, um, some people in Northern Ireland were asked to um, decorate a cake with a message that um, they didn't agree with from their Christianity perspective. Um, and it kind of got fudged in the Supreme Court, but the courts are quite good at balancing those rights and finding a way through and saying, well, we're not criticising you for having your belief. We're criticising you for the way you've shouted it from the rooftops in the workplace and made your colleagues feel uncomfortable. So you can always come back to your um, policies around um, treating everyone with dig dignity and respect and not making your colleagues feel uncomfortable. So if somebody is shouting from the rooftops um, their anti-vax beliefs and it is upsetting other colleagues, you are allowed to start saying, look, you can you can have your belief, that's fine, but what we don't want you doing is upsetting your colleagues and actually you are having this effect, so please stop talking about it. Um, you know, an employer can intervene in those in those circumstances, but we're certainly going to need to deal with, with that in in our um in our policies um i touched on segregation as, as an issue earlier and 
you know, the risks of indirect discrimination. Um, obviously, any kind of dividing people into groups goes against all of our inclusion bones, doesn't it? And I think we have got to be really careful of not unwittingly ending up in, in that kind of area. I mentioned ethics just because I think there are going to be issues around um, employers in the long term, perhaps being offered supplies privately to purchase um, compared to, you know, use for society and, you know, all sorts of ethical questions come up there. Um, technically, yes, there is a risk that if you require pe people to be vaccinated and then they had some kind of negative reaction to the vaccine that they could bring a personal injury claim against you as the employer for making them be vaccinated. Um, I just thought it's fairly unlikely that they get that kind of claim off the ground. Um, you certainly can't contract out of personal injury as a as a risk. So yes, that that is that is sort of floating there in 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 the background. So I just touched on this, you know, potential conflict in the workplace. Um, colleagues don't particularly have the right to know the status of somebody else. Um, from a data protection perspective, if we're going to be processing special um, category personal data about them. Um, confidentiality should apply. Um, but as Tony has pointed out in his question, you know, there's a risk that somebody is going to go around shouting about I'm not having the vaccine and telling everybody anyway. Um, and that's where I think, you know, as I said, we could be saying to that person, you know, fine for you not to be doing, uh, not to be having the vaccine um, because of your beliefs, but we need to be careful about how you're um, treating your colleagues and upsetting them in work. I think there may be some issues around um, pay here. Um, certainly if somebody refused to be vaccinated, you know, if we sent them home without paying them, then we'd be into an awful deduction from wages territory because they'd be saying, I'm ready and willing to turn up to work and you're just refusing to let me. Um, and, you know, the law doesn't give the employer any safe way of of sort of suspending them or, or anything at, at that point. Um, so we'd need to be careful around that kind of um, that kind of uh, policy um, as well. And as I touched on with testing, we do need to think about if somebody is um, having time off to go and get vaccinated, are we gonna pay to encourage that, um, et cetera. I've put the link at the end here about the, um, the CIP PD paper so you know what it's called so you can search it um, and I've also stuck a link here to um, some of the government publications that they are um, using for different sectors um, if you were you know trying to write a policy and you wanted to look at what they were saying for your particular sector if you fall in it it, it might give you some um, some extra support really to, to to put that kind of policy together now I'm conscious on time um but I'm also conscious that we've probably got some other questions so I'm gonna um 
if I can get rid of my slides and then I can see everybody back in the room. See how everybody's hair's grown since the last time I saw you all. <laughs> Has anyone got any questions that I haven't answered that they wanted to cover off? And I'm happy if anyone wants to unmute themselves and, and ask. Or feel free to drop it in the chat box as well. Yeah. yeah. If oh, not, I think you've just covered all the bases, Anna, clearly. Stunned everybody into silence. Yeah, it's, a very, it's a very weird thing delivering this kind of session when you're just talking at your computer screen. And I know you're there. I know all you wonderful, lovely people are there, hopefully listening. But it is really weird because if you're in the room, you make eye contact with people and you can see that, yes, I've sent Tony to sleep. He's obviously bored. Um, but it's, it's hard when, you, when you're doing this. It's very odd. It's very odd. In terms of um, other things, other things coming up, um, I'm sure we'll be looking for ideas um, for future topics. So if anybody has got any particular things i'm thinking of running something on climate change which i know might sound completely left field but um you may be thinking in hr well you know it hasn't got anything to do with me um i'm going to be talking through things that hr can do to help their organizations become more environmentally friendly and things that we can be doing that we can influence in terms of what we do that might have might have a positive impact so if anyone's interested in that then uh, I'm sure you'll be getting a mailing soon um, yeah we've just got loads of thank yous through on the on the meet and chat box so I think you definitely covered all the bases Anna good stuff can you remember the date of the next one James um, we don't have an official date yet, but it's not, <laughs> just drop something in because um, we don't need to book a venue or anything anymore. So, um, yeah, we'll drop something in and I'll share it with everyone. I'll probably do it via Eventbrite as well going forward yeah. just because the communication's a lot better and a bit more fluid than me chasing up and making sure everyone gets the link. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'll, um, I'll upload this as a podcast episode as usual and I'll share that out with everyone. And there's plenty of previous episodes on there. And as I mentioned, the um, Diversity Champions series on there, which we've been doing recently. So, um, yeah, feel free to take a listen whenever you want. Yeah, I mean, if anyone has got any specific questions, they can always drop me a line. Um, you know, sometimes it's as you sit down to draft something, isn't it? Six weeks later, you suddenly think, oh, what about this? So, uh, yeah, just, you know, just get in touch. Yeah, great. And thank you for joining and thank you, Anna, as well. Loads, lots of information there. So um, everyone seems very happy. Good. Glad to be of service. Are you going to say something, Emma? I was just saying thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah, we'll see, see everyone at the next one, I guess. Take care, guys. Stay safe, everybody. Oh, thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.